I wonder how an unbeliever would react if you told them that every kind thing they've ever done was worthless, that God was not impressed with even their most noble acts, that even if they devoted their entire lives to the good of their fellow man, they'd not be one step closer to being right with God. Well, we've no need to wonder. They'd be offended. They'd think badly of you for, for saying those things even, even if you were just the messenger. If the religion, the system of belief that you are presenting to them, didn't recognise their goodness, they'd reject it. Now here in our reading, uh, Paul tells us he was just like that. He thought his background and his religious devotion counted for something with God. Before he knew Jesus Christ, he genuinely thought he was a good person. Like so, so many people around us today, he compared himself to other people and concluded he was doing well. When you, <clears throat> when you share the gospel with others, they'll say things like, I'm not perfect, but, and then go on to tell you how good they are. I'm not a robber or a drug dealer. Congratulations. I'm not a bad person. I, I try to do good. I help in the community. You get the picture. I'm sure you've all heard things like this. And everything they say to you is junk. Now, Friends, it's good that they're not robbers. It's good they show kindness to their neighbour. As long as they don't think any of it will help them get right with God. As we think about what Paul said here in Philippians, we're going to firstly look at this list of credentials he gives us. Then we'll think about why he says they're all worthless. Finally, we'll look at the perfect righteousness of God given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. So my first heading then, if you want one, is uh, Paul's religious CV. I've compared Paul's list of credentials to a religious CV. In America, they use the word resume. We call it CV, Curriculum Vitae. If I were going for a job somewhere, I'd send the employer my CV, listing my previous jobs and outlining my experience. The Apostle Paul isn't going for a new job, so why would he give this impressive list of his background and achievements? I've already said, people can't get right with God through their own efforts. Paul 
And the people of Liverpool and the people of the UK and everywhere else are the same in that respect. None can earn merit with God. If you remember from uh, last week, Paul was explaining what it now means to be a real Jew. It's someone who's circumcised in their heart. Someone who has no confidence in the flesh. They don't trust in their own goodness, that is, or their own works. A true Jew is one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is this. Even if we could earn salvation, even if it was about us and our accomplishments, he'd still beat everyone else. He's not saying this to show off. He's making a valid point. By the measure of man, he was behind no one in moral uprightness, but he confesses it all to be worthless. The point is, if his most excellent religious credentials are worthless, how much more worthless are the works of people who are not as upright as him? Let's have a look at some of the items on his religious CV. Well, firstly, number one, he received the sign of the covenant. That's in verse 5. When he was just a baby, he was circumcised as dictated by the law of Moses. It was thought uh, that, um, well, it, it, they had the confidence that uh, through this they would, be, they would become part of this arrangement with God. And when he grew up, his duty would be to uh, worship, honour and serve God with his whole heart. And of all, all the people who lived on the planet when Paul was born, he was among the tiny few who had this immense privilege of receiving the sign of this covenant with God. Number two on his list, he was an Israelite. He belonged to that nation which God had created to show his favour to. This was the people God entrusted with the scriptures. And it was through these families that the Messiah would come. Paul belonged to the most exalted nation on earth. Number three. He could trace his ancestry to a specific tribe. Paul was a, a zealous missionary, as you know, for Judaism. His mission was the conversion of Gentiles. These converts were to be treated, for the most part, like any other Jew. But they weren't flesh and blood descendants of Jacob. Paul was. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. It was a small tribe, but they were valiant, and their descendants were no doubt proud that the first king of Israel, Saul, was one of them. Well, number four, he was behind no one as a Hebrew. This was an old-fashioned term, but Paul had been proud to still think of himself as an Hebrew. 
He belonged to a religious tradition which preferred the Hebrew language in a world where most Jews had started speaking Greek. Number five, he was part of the religious elite. He wasn't merely a faithful Hebrew layperson, but a religious leader. He belonged to the strict Jewish sect of the Pharisees. They kept the Mosaic law carefully. I know it was outward only. But they kept it carefully. And not only this, Paul's father and his father's father had also been Pharisees. Number six, he persecuted God's enemies. That's verse uh, six. Anyone who wasn't a Jew was an enemy of God. They were to be targeted for conversion. And if they didn't convert, they'd be written off as the worst of mankind. And if they belonged to some unorthodox, unorthodox um, sect, uh, like the followers of Jesus, they were to be persecuted. Paul hunted down the Christians and tried to force them to recant. And where this failed, he gave his support to their execution. And number seven, his final credential, he obeyed God's law rigorously. We read there, he referred to himself as blameless. Now, Paul didn't mean that he used to think of himself as um, sinless or perfect in every way. But he, he carefully followed all the instructions of the Mosaic law. This included making all the right sacrifices in the temple for the sins he did commit. In, in other words, as far as you could get in law keeping, Paul had been in. What an impressive list in terms of the law of God Paul had been at the top of his game following his conversion he told the church in when he wrote uh, the letter to the church in Galatia he said to them that he was far ahead of his fellow Jews in his zeal for the traditions of his ancestors and it was all junk he said junk and how much more rubbish must be the, the lesser achievements of the majority of Jews okay so my second point is about the worthlessness of self-righteousness the worthlessness of self-righteousness have a look if you will at Romans chapter 10 Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. Now it's talking about him and his fellow Jews. It's, Paul says, Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That included Paul, Saul, but for this Saul of Tarsus, God had plans. 
The risen Jesus, you remember, appeared to him one day and put an abrupt end to his promising career as this, you know, super Jew. Saul was converted and he became to be known as Paul. So when he was born, he was given the name of Israel's famous King Saul, a tall, proud and powerful Benjamite. And when he was born again, this time by the Spirit of God, he used the name which means small. Insignificant. But Paul became part of an exciting new movement. And just like today, the church was made up of people who were very different. They were very different in terms of, say, education. There were people in the church who were uh, illiterate and people who were highly educated, like Paul. And so the last of the great apostles used his mighty intellect for his service in the church of God. The book of Romans we, we just read from, it's regarded as the most theologically sophisticated book in the Bible. So Paul, yet yeah, Paul was insignificant in the eyes of this world. But he was an important figure in God's kingdom. As soon as he was converted, the Holy Spirit began to illuminate the apostles' keen mind. Paul quickly came to some shocking conclusions. And one of the subjects he wrote about most frequently was this business of righteousness. I mention this word righteousness a lot, don't I? Well, it's one of those words which can send people asleep, you know, if they have a pretty shallow experience of God. It's one of those words that will result in them losing interest. Anyway, I've tried to define it in different ways. Sometimes my definitions aren't very good, but it's because I've tried to use plain language to get across something of the idea. Now, for example, I've uh, previously called righteousness the perfect goodness of God. But I'm aware this isn't the best of definitions. So, today, let me try and be a bit more precise and add a, a, a small layer onto my previous uh, attempts at explaining this. We think of righteousness as obeying law. Righteousness is obeying law. Now, we say God is righteous. Now, I'm not saying there's some law out there that exists in the universe which God obeys and this makes him righteous. With God, the perfect standards are within his own nature. So, to say God is righteous means he never falls short of those standards that are within himself. It's within God that there's this standard of truthfulness. Is God always truthful? Yes. Will he always be truthful? Yes. Is he capable of not being truthful? 
Not at all. Now listen, God won't be sharing his future with lawbreakers. Never will. Anyone who wants to live with God forever must be righteous. Just like God is. The Jews, you see, had come to believe they could, they could achieve the righteousness God required through their own efforts. In this way, they followed the religions of this world. You know, the theistic religions, they, they tell their followers they can get right with God by performing certain acts. And that's all false. So we say they are works-based religions, whereas ours is a grace-based religion. If you have a look, maybe later, at Isaiah chapter 64, you'll find there, we hear the prophet describing uh, these efforts of man to please God. Verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our King James Version says, Filthy rags. So Paul realised the utter worthlessness of a righteousness which comes through your own efforts. As a Jew, he tried to gain it by following the rules in the law of Moses. Back in the Philippians 3, we read, um, Paul came to realise about all those things we listed, which he was previously proud of the things he placed his confidence in, all this he said, all this I count as loss. When he met Jesus Christ he realised all that he thought counted as merit was instead demerit. It wasn't profit but loss. Imagine you own a, a company and you own this big company, it's time to submit your accounts at the end of the year. And you think your business has done pretty well. But the accountant brings you up with some terrible news. Despite how great the business looked from the outside, it turns out you made a terrible loss over the past year. And you think all that time and effort, and you've made a loss. Paul understood when his life came under the scrutiny of the great accountant, his whole life to that point was loss. The prophet he thought he'd earned with God through his religious activity had vanished. All those aspects of his devotion to God were not just pointless either. In verse 8 he describes them as rubbish. Not just Neutral and pointless, but rubbish. Different, different Bibles translate this word in different ways. Some say dung. Dung. Uh, others say the word refers to the 
food scraps that you would throw out for the dogs to eat. And, you know, Paul, not long ago, was using the term dogs when he was describing those unbelieving uh, Jews. Dogs. Uh, so, so, so that idea of food scraps would work as well. But the point is clear enough. All the very best things about his old, his old identity were nothing but a pile of old junk. If you just, uh, if you just take a look at the previous chapter, uh, chapter two and verse seven. Now I spoke about this a few weeks ago. It talks about how Jesus Christ humbled himself, even emptying himself of his glory. He became a real man, did he not? He was, he was, oh, he was divine, all right. But if he were to walk in here this morning in the in modern clothing, all you'd see was a normal man. You'd say, "Hello, P pleased to meet you. Would you like to come and sit down?" <laughs> and there's no, there'd be no halo. There'd be no shining face. Not distinguished in his appearance in any way. He was a man. Because he emptied himself as that glory. And we might say Paul went through a process of emptying himself too. He had a, a, a sort out. It's like, it's like he opened the box of his heart and went through it all. Let's see. Uh, a silver bracelet to mark my circumcision. Rubbish. What's this? My Jewish genealogy and a family tree. Ugh. Rubbish. What's this? The oh, the honours degree I got in Jewish studies at the University of Jerusalem. Ugh. Rubbish. Uh, what's this? An ornate scroll of Isaiah, a gift from the high priest to recognise my zeal. Oh, rubbish. He had a sort out of his own heart and got rid of his reputation, got rid of his achievements, got rid of his self-reliance, his self-righteousness, got rid of it so that he could then be filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He traded everything for what he calls it, there in verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Well, he lost his whole life, friends. He lost his whole life in order to know Jesus. And he did it gladly. I was thinking about what a modern self-righteous religious person would sound like in our day. Now there's no shortage of religious people in, in our city. Uh, we, have, we have tens of thousands of people who are religious. The problem is, almost all of them are relying on their own righteousness. If there's a judgment they reason, then I should be okay. My behavior measures up pretty well compared to other people. Just listen to the things they say, just listen to them, it will all come out. 
<coughs> we have a I was baptised as a baby. As a child, I was confirmed. Or, I had my Holy Communion. I live in a Christian country. <laughs> oh, that's funny. My family are all devout Protestants. Or, my family are all committed Catholics. I'm a good Christian man or woman. I give things up for Lent and only eat fish on Good Friday. I attend church several times a year and I always throw my pound in the collection. <laughs> oh. What the religious people of our city need first and foremost is to consider all the works of righteousness they've done throughout life as rubbish. As long as they're holding on to anything, they can never gain Christ. Here's my final point. It is the, the perfection of the righteousness of God. The perfection of the righteousness of God. <clears throat> I, said, I said earlier, God cannot allow any creature into his presence who isn't righteous like him. We've looked at the righteousness which comes through living a morally upstanding life. The righteousness which comes through obeying the law of Moses. And hopefully we're all in agreement that it's useless. In verse 9 here, Paul talks of a different type of righteousness. It's a righteousness which comes from God. It's God's own righteousness. It's a sharing of this perfect attribute of his with us. And what it means is to, to those of us here or anywhere who've, who've received the righteousness of God they get these two huge benefits. Firstly at the judgment of God we will be declared not guilty. We must be declared not guilty. When the judge of all the earth looks at us, he'll see us as those who kept all his legal requirements perfectly. And it's actually because he's perfect in righteousness that we have the confidence of this amazing outcome in the great courtroom. The second benefit of receiving this righteousness of God is we get to live with God. We get to live with him. I assure you friends, we are already living with God, but there's a level of existence to come which excels this one by far. A cohabitation with our Lord without the interference of sin. A life in the immediate presence of God which will never end. So, we know, we know man needs this righteousness which comes from God, but how does he get it? 
We've already said, man cannot do anything to deserve any favour from God. How does he get it then? Well, he answers also in verse 9. This righteousness from God comes as a result of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Our Saviour willingly went to his violent death 2,000 years ago on that hill far away to an old rugged cross Jesus of Nazareth was nailed. Always present in his thoughts was that golden list of God's elect people and his love for them and his holy determination to save them from their sins moved him to subject himself to that which as a man he recoiled from. Every individual for whom Christ was punished will never have to face the punishment themselves. I am staggered, friends. I am staggered that the saviour of the world had the name Paul Forrest in his mind as he hung there. And all the fury of God that was coming my way was redirected onto the sweet head of Jesus. And the end of days will no doubt reveal the immensity of my sins, the number of them, the depth of them, and the eternity of retribution due to me was in, in, in some way made into a highly concentrated mixture of wrath which flowed from heaven into the soul of Jesus my Lord. And the great project of my salvation continued. When I came into this world, the roadmap of my life was already in existence. God would gradually reveal himself to me and show me I was one of that multitude whose redemption was secured at Calvary. God gave me repentance and faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ today, he's done the same for you, friends. Paul says a few things here about Christ. The end of verse 8 talks about how he wants to put his former life behind him so he could gain Christ. He's talking there like Christ is a possession that he never wants to let go of. Straight after that, he talks about being found in Christ. The metaphor changes now so that Paul imagines himself being in Christ, like he would live in a castle. But well, By the way, whenever you next come across the cities of refuge in in the book of Numbers, recall that, that those cities of refuge are images, if you like, of Jesus Christ. Because when we go to Jesus Christ in faith, we can think of that as being admitted into the safe stronghold of God. Brother, sister, if you belong to God today, you are located 
in the city of refuge that is Jesus Christ. You may live in Liverpool, you may go on holiday to Mexico or the Isle of Wight, but you will, you will always be in him. And the third thing Paul says about Christ is a bit further on in verse 9. There he talks about faith in Christ. When God seeks out his elect people, he gives them this faith. They believe Jesus died for sinful people. They understand he died for them. They trust this sacrifice of Christ was acceptable to God. And they joyfully accept the promise of forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Paul understood the difference between a righteousness that comes through the law and the one which comes by faith. When we find Christ, we see him to be the great mediator between God and ourselves. And in faith, in faith, we see him presenting his own shed blood in the most holy place in heaven. And in faith, we see it being accepted by God. And we see, and we realise that on the basis of that shed blood, the righteousness of God becomes ours. Last week I said, uh, one of the... One of the marks of a true Jew was glorifying, uh, was glorying in Christ Jesus, remember? Glorying in Christ Jesus. Now today we see just how Paul gloried in Jesus. It was by abandoning all confidence in himself that he um, found Christ. It was by discarding the junk of his own righteousness that he received instead the righteousness of God. Well, it's my hope that all of you here this morning will have had the same realisation as he did. My hope is you'll have already looked at the accounts of your own life, worked it all out, and saw all your self-righteous efforts as loss. I hope and pray you've gladly suffered the loss of all those former things. So that you might gain Christ. Be found in Christ. And have absolute faith in Christ. So that he will take centre stage. In your heart and be the sole object of your adoration. Amen.